And so this morning, I get to wrap up Ezra, and we'll be looking at chapters 9 and 10. And the title of my sermon, if I had to give it a title this morning, it's Returning to Holiness, the Call of Ezra 9 and 10. And Steve, I know that I've got this slide with my points like all the way at the end, and we've done like so much today. And there's been so many conversations that we've had in our pre-service prayer and even in worship that is just like touching on so many points of my sermon. I love how the Lord works. But I want us to pull up my points for this sermon because I won't reference them again throughout the sermon because I'll really be going at it here. And so I want to let you know what they are up front. So if you're taking notes this morning, here they are. Point one is the weight or gravity of repentance. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we must consistently evaluate our lives to ensure we're not being led astray by the allure of the world. And so it's essential to maintain a humble heart that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction. Point two is embrace the beauty of restoration. See, even in the weightiness of sin, hope glimmers. We're never too far gone for God's redeeming love. All it takes is a contrite heart turning back to Him. And then point three is going to be resolute obedience to God's Word. The walk of obedience and true repentance doesn't end in just feeling remorseful. It calls us to action. And obedience to God might require us to make challenging choices. Yet, it's in those moments of determined obedience that our faith is both tested and strengthened. And so we must always hold God's word as our compass. And so as I go throughout the next two chapters this morning you'll see that I'll be touching on these different themes in various ways. But before we get started, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, God. I pray that even though these are words that have been written thousands of years ago, because your word is living and active, God, it can instruct our lives today. It is still relevant to how we live or walk today, God. So speak to each and every one of our hearts this morning. Speak to those who are tuned in online and to those who will listen to this recording at a later day. In your name we pray. Amen. And so let's do a quick recap. Uh, Last week, by the end of chapter 8, with the temple being reconstructed, worship practices reinstated, and another contingent of exiles settled under Ezra's leadership, all seems to be heading in a positive direction. We're like, all right, we got this. We're making some progress. Everything is moving forward. However, chapters 9 and 10 soon reveal that despite these exterior restorations, the community's internal spiritual health is compromised, primarily due to intermarriages with foreign peoples, which was a significant deviation from the divine mandate that underpinned their distinct identity and covenant relationship with God. Now, before we go further, I think it's important to remind us that Ezra and Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem, respectively. Ezra, the book about rebuilding of the temple, can be divided into two parts. Chapters 1 to 6 and chapters 7 to 10. 
And in both sections, Israel faces opposition. Pastor Dan spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. And the main difference between the two sections is that chapters 1 to 6 is about external opposition from the people of the land. And in chapters 7 to 10, the opposition comes from within. And so I want to propose to you this morning that the greatest threat for the church comes not from opposition outside its community of believers, but from inside the church itself. And I know that is a very strong statement, but I believe it to be true. And as we wrap up the book of Ezra, we find that this is exactly the case. So let's start reading. Chapter 9, it says, Now when these things had been completed, the officials approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. As to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the whole race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the officials and the leaders have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. So let's pause right there because a lot has happened in just two verses. And there's no way I'm going to be able to dive into all of the truths in these two passages. And so you will have to do some of that study. But there are a few things I want to highlight throughout these two chapters. So after months of following God's law regarding sacrifices, purity, and such, that is what the verse means by now when these things had been completed. After months of doing those things and hearing the teachings of Ezra described, some of the people were getting it. However, some officials approached Ezra saying that there is a group that has not been faithful to the law of God. They had married foreign wives. And we see that it was not Ezra who discovered this issue and brought it up. The people themselves brought it up. So this tells us that it was not a sin of ignorance. It was a well-known problem and that those who did commit this sin did it knowingly and deliberately. The sin was not limited to a few. It was a widespread problem affecting many of the remnant. And this sin was also not limited to the common people. It, the verse tells us that the leaders, in fact, were foremost in this sin. The leaders do not include only political leaders, but also the spiritual leaders, the Levites. And so what's the big issue with intermarriage? Well, to understand this, we ought to go back to the law. And I think you will see the, cons the concern here. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to take possession of it, then he drives away men and nations from before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all the Ites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God turns them over to you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall not make a covenant with them, nor be gracious to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me. 
And they will serve other gods, and the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Verse 5, but this is what you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their memorial stones, cut their ashrams to pieces, and burn their carved images in the fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his personal possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So the concern in Ezra, the concern that God has was that they would turn away to worship other gods. They were meant to be a holy people. And Pastor Miriam mentioned what this meant earlier. It means being set apart, basically. And notice that the list seven, the, the, the list of seven nations in Deuteronomy is included in the Ezra passage with a few additions of the Ammonites, Moabites, and the Egyptians. So to be clear, the Bible is not against interracial marriage. It is not racist or supremacist either. The predominant meaning and purpose of the command to not intermarry was to avoid religious adultery and to keep the Jews from worshipping the gods of the other nations. Now, I don't have time to get into this other one, but you can find another reference of that in Exodus chapter 34 to 16. And in that passage, God basically tells them the same thing. Do not intermarry, because if you marry, they will turn your sons away from following the Lord. And again, this is not because the people of Israel were ethnically superior to others. It was because almost universally, the people of the other nations around them were idol worshippers and committed many abominations in God's sight. Think about it this way. Marriage is the closest, most intimate relationship there is. And it is impossible not to be affected and influenced by one's spouse. God told the people that intermarriage with the other peoples would negatively impact their relationship with God. It would be a major impact to the point where the unbelieving spouses would drag the people's heart away from God and to false religion. And this can be seen clearly in the life of Solomon and also with others such as Ahab and Jezebel. That's just like extra for you, all right? I'm just painting the picture here as we keep moving forward because it will instruct in many ways chapters 10 well chapter 10 so the problem has been identified so what should the people do there are two reactions to this acknowledgement of sin one action is exemplified by the actions of Ezra and the other is enacted by the people as initiated by the leaders let's read Ezra chapter 9 verses 3 to 15 when I heard about this matter, I tore, this is Ezra speaking here. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled out some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who was frightened by the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me. And I sat appalled until the evening offering. And then Ezra goes into a prayer of confession. Verse 5, but at the evening offering, I stood up from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I bowed down on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, my God, I am ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our wrongful 
sinful deeds have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And because of our wrongful deeds, we, our kings and our priests, have been handed over to the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to open shame, as it is to this day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us as an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place so that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not abandoned us, but has extended favor to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us reviving to erect the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have abandoned your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands with their abominations which have filled it from the end from end to end and with their impurity so now do not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity so that you may be strong and may eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever and after everything that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt since you are God have spared us by inflicting less than our wrongdoing deserves and have given us such an escaped remnant as this shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there would be no remnant nor any who would escape lord god of israel you are righteous for you have been left for you, for we have been left an escaped remnant and it is this day behold we are before you in our guilt for no one can stand before you because of this. It's a very moving prayer. As I read that this week, it made me think about the concept of repentance, what Ezra is saying here. And so how did Ezra respond when he heard this, what was happening in the land? Ezra had an extreme and visible reaction when he heard this news. It could almost be classified as a violent action. And when some people saw him, they might have thought he went crazy. And reading that, you might have thought the same. But his reaction shows the level of his detest for the sin the people were committing. And this is a very sharp contrast with the people of the land. Because they had lived with and tolerated this sin for some time. And there doesn't appear to be any group or people who are reacting against the sin as Ezra did. And so the first thing Ezra did is he starts by declaring his shame in verse 6 of chapter 9. And he doesn't say they have. He said we have. We have done this as a people we are in sin and often the last place we want to go when we're in sin is to god but one of the reasons is that we when we feel that way is because of the shame we feel like peter denying jesus we want to run and hide because of our shame like adam in the garden we want to hide from god because of our shame yet we are reminded that god knows our sin he knows our shame and he wants us to approach him like the prodigal son and like ezra in spite of what we did the second thing ezra recounts the faithfulness and the grace of god 
he reiterates God's holiness and purity in the face of Israel's sin. And he makes it very clear that God is not the one to blame for what has happened. God never abandoned Israel. Israel abandoned God. They have no one to blame but themselves. Three, Ezra admits their sins in verses 10 to 14. And then he also, the last thing he does here is he declares God's righteousness in verse 15. And so he ends by declaring that God has the right to wipe them out, that God has the right to punish them. And so we've seen Ezra's response. We read it. And one of the many questions I have for you this morning is how do we respond when we see sin in our midst? I'm not talking about out there in our midst. How do we respond when people point out sin in our own lives? In today's society, tolerance is considered to be one of the most important character qualities you can have. You're supposed to tolerate anything and everything, no matter how evil it is, except Christianity, of course, because Satan is very deceptive. It's live and let live. And sometimes it's easy to see the problems in the lives of others or in the world or as a general problem within our culture today. But it could be harder to see the problem in our own lives. So the more important question I have for you is not, does the world have a problem with tolerating sin? It is, do I have a problem with tolerating sin? Each of us needs to examine ourselves. If there is any sin, we must ruthlessly root it out. We must hate sin like God does and never tolerate it in any form for even a second. In the first verses of this chapter, we saw the leaders' bad examples were a precedent for the people that they latched on to feel comfortable with continuing in their own sin. Now we see a difference in Ezra, the difference a righteous person can make. Ezra clearly and publicly reacted to this sin. He did not allow the people to feel comfortable anymore while committing sin. And it serves as a rallying point for those who want to obey God. That we must use the position God has given us to lead righteously and take a stand against sin. Amen? Inside the church. I'm not talking about out there. It's easy to point our fingers out there, but in John 3, 17, Jesus said, God did not send His Son into the world to what? Not to condemn the world, but to do what? To save the world. Let's start looking inside before we start looking out there. So Ezra ends chapter 9 by declaring that God has the right to wipe them out. And that God has the right to punish them. Then in chapter 10, we read that a large group of people also wept or mourned and joined Ezra in repenting. Ezra 10.1. It says, while na- Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept greatly. Church, repentance is a change of attitude and action from sin toward obedience to God. The concept of repentance differs slightly in Hebrew and Greek minds, and I don't have time to get into that, but the emphasis upon right behavior is consistent throughout the meaning. And so, chapter 10 begins with this large assembly, spurred by Ezra's leadership and conviction. The people decide to take concrete action that's very perplexing. 
And let me warn you, the next few verses we read are going to be hard and challenging for us to comprehend. Well, maybe I should speak for myself because when I first read these verses as a younger Christian, I was like, what? How is that a solution? So it's challenging, but we'll walk through it here. Verse 2. It says, Shechaniah, we'll read all the way through to verse 16. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. But we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites and all Israel, take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Verse 7, they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. This, it was the ninth month of the twentieth of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right, and you have said, So it is, our duty to do. But there are many people... It is rainy season, and we're not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly, and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikva, oppose this with Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supporting them. But the exiles did so, and Ezra the priest selected men who were heads of the fathers' households for each of their fathers' households, all of them by name. So they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. And that's a lot of stuff that we walk through there. So Ezra finally gets some help from Shechaniah. And he speaks out, offering a plan to deal with this problem. If you look at verse 26 of chapter 10, you will notice that six of Shechaniah's family members were involved in this sin, including his own father. Verse 26 says, From the descendants of Elam, Mathaniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. And in verse 2 of chapter 10, it says, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of of Elam. So his family members are involved in this. And for this reason, it would have been hard for him to speak out. He may have sympathized with the sinners or felt pressure from his family to be quiet. Yet, 
he knew that sin must be dealt with even among those close to him. And the fact that his family members were doing this made his proposal more difficult and highlights the boldness of this move. It is also worthwhile to note that he did not follow his family to do the evil, but instead spoke out against it. The application for us is this. Do not join in wrongdoing just because people close to us are doing it, even if it's your family. So Shechaniah's proposal was to make a covenant with God and divorce the women and put away the children from these relationships. That is what they mean by putting away. And I'm like, what? How is that a solution? We know that God hates divorce. So how is this a solution? But let's take a look at this proposal. I don't have time, again, to go in depth into this, but I'll cover the foundational aspects of it. Because if I don't, we'll miss the point of what's happening here and we'll be stuck on that. And that's not the point of the text. So the first part of the proposal is to make a covenant with God. And this is an excellent place to begin. This would show that they recognized their culpability. They were admitting their wrongdoing. And they vowed to God that they would fix it. And so they realized that their sin was primarily against God. The second part is a drastic step to solve this problem, not without controversy. This was not a pretty plan. It was not an easy plan. It would be ugly and messy. Divorce is always ugly, and that would be amplified many times over because of the sheer number of them. I believe it was like, scholars believe, 113 of them to be exact. And so, as bad as it was to send away the wives, it would be even more difficult to send away the children of these marriages who were completely innocent parties. So why do this? Again, if God hates divorce, then why did Ezra agree to this plan? So let's look at the issue. First, God hates divorce, but God also hates their sin for getting married to the pagan people. Who else had led them astray. Who had got them in this situation? They and these people would lead them astray. So basically the people got themselves into a serious dilemma. They were two bad choices with no good way out. Bad choice number one equals stay married to these people and the result would likely be disastrous in that a huge part of the remnant would gradually fall away from God. Bad choice number two is to immediately end these relationships. And this would cause some collateral damage, specifically to women and children. But it was necessary, it was a necessary step to ensure the spiritual purity of the nation. There is an important lesson here. The lesson is that our sin can lead us into situations from which there is no good way out. Remember that God did not lead them into this dilemma. He warned them many years before. They knew the law. Ezra had been teaching this. And so their own sinful choices led them into it. And so let me just say this. By far, the best solution for us is to up, obey God on the front side. If you do, you will have to avoid the you will be able to avoid these types of two of the lesser evils types of situations in your life. Second, we should also keep in mind the fragile state of the remnant. Here's a small remnant of people who returned to Jerusalem. They were protected. They were unprotected. There were no walls. They were few in numbers. Their faith was volatile. God had already judged them for their sins. And another deliberate and prolonged rebellion against God could be disastrous. Now, this narrative account should not be used, though 
verses we just read, this narrative should not, and I say should not, I have it in bold here, all caps, be used as a justification for any believer today or at any point in time to get a divorce. Let me just make that clear. Instead, we should look at the teaching passages in the Bible for guidelines on this. So when we read Ezra 9 and 10, we have to read it in context of what was going on, but also sympathetically, because if we approach this text solely from our modern perspective, then you'll ask the same questions I asked. Well, what about these women and children? They are innocent they're being discarded, so to speak. And you know what? I don't even think that it's a bad thing to ask that question because that's human. It's quite possibly the obvious question to ask. But remember, Ezra is a scribe who is well-learned and well-versed in the law. Pastor Laura talked about that. So Ezra, in many ways, is probably thinking, Moses passed this law about divorce years before, and in light of what's happening, how do I, Ezra, enact this law in a way to ensure God's people remains set apart, to ensure that God's people remain holy? So what he's doing is creating, in many ways, an interpretive principle. And the principle is this. God's people need to be very distinct, and there are times where the boundary line needs to be very clear so that our identity as God's covenant people isn't compromised, and hence the painful solution of divorce. So the deeper issue was about the religious practices not being compromised. Might I add that? This is what we do today. When we read the Bible and interpret what the Word of God is saying, when we approach modern-day situations, we're, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're finding interpretive principles of how to address modern-day situations. And this is a task of any generation. Every generation is called to this, and how they've done it throughout the centuries can be quite less than ideal. Throughout its history, the Christian church has often taken stances against prevailing societal norms in order to maintain its distinct identity as a people of God. Now, we're not under the law, we're under grace, and so there's a lot of leeway there. But throughout history, the church's stances have been both praised and criticized. However, at its core, the intent has often been to maintain a distinct identity as the people of God and to uphold what is perceived as biblical truth, even when it runs counter to societal norms or practices. In our day and age, think about the issue of sexuality, abortion, or whatever other moral or ethical issue could come to your mind as I speak. Different denominations and traditions within Christianity have various perspectives on these issues. Still, many take positions that set them apart from the prevailing societal views, emphasizing a distinctly Christian worldview, and that we are set apart, that we are holy, that we are God's people, because these are our stance on these issues. And for each generation, those issues, whatever they are, they are challenging and baffling. And those issues will continue until Jesus returns. Now, I can't get into how they stood in the rain for three days, but I'll tell you this. It was cold. So imagine being out in the rain for three days in November, December here in the Pacific Northwest. This is how serious they were about what had taken place, about the sin that they had committed. One of the coldest showers I ever took was in Colombia in 2015. I'd gone on a mission trip. I'm leading this team of people, and we end up going into the mountains. And I grew up taking cold showers. I, I probably took my first cold shower, uh, my first hot shower as an adult. 
And so I, I grew up taking cold showers, but I am in temperatures in the mountains where it's like in the 40s and the water is cold. And I was playing some hopscotch in that shower. Imagine they're doing this for three days in the type of weather that we have out here. And so as we continue in the text, I won't read through the rest of the chapter. We see that there are a few people who disagreed, and it's not clear whether they disagreed with the plan to divorce the pagan wives or if they disagreed with this specific proposal of delay. Either way, most people agreed upon the solution. And it's pretty amazing that only three people voiced opposition in the midst of all the remnant who had been there. And so it took a couple of months for them to walk it out, but they followed it through. And they did what they had promised. And then Ezra chapter 10 ends with listing the names of those who were guilty of intermarriage in verses 18 to 44. Which brings us to the end of Ezra. So the Israelites had intermarried with foreign tribes. An act that went against God's direct command. And while this might seem like an ancient issue, the heart of the matter is how often do we as believers intertwine or lies with that which God has warned us against. Sin, my friends, isn't just a personal issue. It ripples. It affects our families, our churches, our communities. Therefore, we must consistently evaluate our lives, ensuring we're not being led astray. Romans 12, 1-3 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be confirmed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Paul implores believers to offer their lives completely to God, paralleling the idea of Old Testament sacrifices. However, instead of dead sacrifices, we are called to be a living sacrifice. Our entire being, our actions, our thoughts, and lifestyles should be given over to God as an act of worship. Church, we need to recognize God's mercies and in response, commit our lives entirely to Him. The commitment is not just about attending church or partaking in religious rituals. It involves the daily living out of our faith and a need for reflecting Christ in every aspect of our lives. And Paul warns against being molded by secular influences and patterns of the world. Instead, we are to undergo a transformation. This transformation isn't just a one-time event. It's an ongoing process that begins in the mind by continually immersing ourselves in God's Word and seeking His wisdom so that we can understand and discern His will. And with the increase in secularization of society the myriad of influences that beckon church we are being reminded to guard against assimilating values and behaviors that conflict with God's standards and by regularly engaging with scripture and through prayer we can cultivate a mindset aligned with God's purposes which will lead to holy living. Holiness involves being set apart for God's purposes and sin corrupts those purposes. Sin isn't just a personal issue. It has far reaching 
interesting implications. The Israelites' intermarriage with foreign tribes against God's explicit command led to a dilution of their distinct identity and values. And just as yeast leavens the whole dough, sin left unchecked can influence an entire community and your life. Evaluate your life. The practical application is this. As Christians, we must recognize the weight of our actions and choices, not only for ourselves, but also for our families. Because, quote-unquote, personal sins can leave larger consequences. This is what is essential. Let's reflect on ourselves. Let's maintain a humble heart that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction. We often think about and talk about sins in terms of behavior. We say sin is bad behavior, but behavioral issues stem from heart issues. Treating behavior begins with treating the heart. While there are some practical and helpful methods to address the behavior immediately and directly, true repentance is deeper than a surface change in behavior. It comes from the healing and transformation of the heart. See, our hearts and our minds are like a tree. And our words and actions are the fruit of that tree. Luke 6, 4-5 says, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Matthew 7, 17 to 20 says, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Church, let's not be confirmed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we may be able to discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. In light of the verses I just read and the verses above, repentance is like pruning. That is when there is a bad or diseased part of a tree. If you're a gardener, it needs to be cut off so that the tree can be healthy and produce fruit. So pruning is painful, but the results are wonderful, and there is a need for a radical separation from the gods of this world and an equal radical commitment to trust and obedience to the ways of God today. May we live that way in this day and age. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Unstained means removing and tearing away from among us the things that have become gods to us. Money, power, sex, pornography, status, rank, education, possession, social media, approval, etc. The list can go on and on. This is no subtle act. The Jews needed to send away their foreign wives and children. How painful that act must have been. But the sin had to be removed regardless of the pain it might cause. And the new life, the one Jesus died for us to have, needs to be the one we embrace. And this requires confession and repentance. Pastor Mary spoke about it this morning. So many people were in my sermon today. But the Lord speaks like that. John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians seven ten says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance 
without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So I'm going to call up the worship team at this time. And as they get ready to pray, uh, to play, I want you to reflect on your lives. I'm not going to do an altar call, but right where you're at, where are you in your relationship with the Lord? What sins have you been tolerating in your life? I'm not talking about out there. True worship is not just our activity. It also involves relationship. Jesus taught about this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says that if you're offering your gift on the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. When we sin, we break relationship with others and with God. These come from all areas of our lives. Money, possession, work, accomplishment, acceptance in society, control, power, food, drink, entertainment, fun. And the list can go on and on. And this list generally refers to behavior and lifestyle, but there are different areas of our life that become corrupted by even deeper motives and desires. The seeds of sin that come from the heart, things like greed and pride and lust and hatred. What sins of the heart have you struggled with? If we are to offer true worship, then we must be willing to take our shame to God, confess what we have done against Him and others, and then change our minds and actions to line up with His heart and with His Word. We no longer offer animal sacrifices as a part of our worship. Jesus put an end to that and fulfilled the end of that covenant. But because of this, because of God's grace and His grace alone, we have been reconciled to God and our salvation is not a result of our worship. Rather, it is in response to salvation and from within the depths of God's mercy that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Him. Humble. And so I'm calling you today to embrace a life of worship by confessing and repenting here and now of what the Holy Spirit is showing you right where you are in this room, in your living room. Or if you so feel that you need to come up front, do so. Humble yourself before God. If you feel you need to get on your knees, I'd ask that you would do that. Will you commit your heart and your life not to be enslaved to sin, but to righteousness. For those of us who place our faith in Christ and call Him King and Lord, may we not live as gluttons of grace. May we not take grace for granted. May we offer ourselves as living sacrifice individually and as the body of Christ, continually growing and becoming more sanctified and fruitful by the will of the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Church, obedience to God isn't merely a passive avoidance of sin, but an active alignment with His Word. Israelites took concrete steps to rectify their actions. 
even if it came at a great personal cost. God's standards might seem challenging, but they are always for our ultimate good. We are called to be holy. We are called to live set apart. Would you live holy before Him? Amen.